today's passage and message, I have to finish last week's sermon. This won't happen too often. Usually when someone comes to me after a message and says, you know, you didn't talk about this verse. The real answer is, because they didn't know what to do with it or it was too hard or it was something like that. But this time someone came up to me and said, Pastor Eric, when you preached last week Sunday on Psalm 51, you didn't talk about against you, you only have I sinned. And as I said, I said, oh no, because I really did want to talk about that piece. And it's really important, and it fits with what we've just been doing in terms of our prayer and our Lord have mercy prayers and so on. So I'm going to tell you now, briefly. The question basically is this. If I come up and kick you, you've been hurt, likely, and I just go, sorry, God, and ignore you, that doesn't seem quite right, does it? But the psalmist says, against you, you only have I sinned, Lord. Never mind all these people I've sinned against. And remember, this is David's psalm after his sin with Bathsheba, not to mention Uriah, who was dead. I think Uriah would feel sinned against, right? So why does David say, against you, you only have I sinned, O Lord? And I think as we do sanctus and pray holy and Lord have mercy, we can understand this. It's not that you don't need to apologize to other people when you hurt them. Let's be really clear about that. That is, that's on. Do that. But if there's no God, if there's no creator who set all the patterns in place that we're breaking when we sin, then there also is no sin. Right? If you believe that this world just kind of happened by accident and things are just moving along and there's no higher power, if you will, there's no God managing the whole system and, and guiding it in such a way that it actually makes sense to us, which we seem creative to, created to expect, then yeah, there's no sin either. You can do whatever you want. Right? Philosophers who've leaned most deeply into there is no God have also become rather depressed or overwhelmed or anxious or all those other kinds of things because we need God just to make sense of the world. And part of the way he makes sense of this world is making us people who know when we've done wrong and it's against his rules and his system even when we hurt other people. Apologize to others, recognize that it's God's system in which all that takes place. Hope that helps. And no, that's not an invitation for as many people as possible to come up with things that I missed this week. All right? Just, just to be clear. John 6, we're going to read today. I love John's writing. John also wrote Revelation. At least I think the same John wrote Revelation. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John is an amazing writer. Um, I sometimes think that because the Bible is an ancient book, we have a, we have a bias against what's old right? Sorry, older people, right? We have a bias against history, right? Sorry, history. But this ancient book, which is written not the way we would read, is not presented in a way that we would watch on Netflix, for example. Um, if you understand it, as you study it, you realize it's mostly written by incredibly amazing writers, and John is probably the top of them. He uses, as I've said many times, he uses incredibly simple words, and he gives us an incredibly profound message. It's sort of like reading Hop on Pop by Dr. Seuss and not getting it. That's John in a nutshell. John 6. 
hear God's word. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is nice. Thank you, Bruce and Harrietta. That is just water, right? I have enough colleagues who've played tricks on each other and put vodka or something like that in there, so it's worth asking, trust me. Okay, we are continuing our journey through Lent, looking at uh, communion in terms of its themes and styles, um, thinking about the different things that are taught in communion, all the different aspects. Today we're going to look at the mystery of the bread of life. We're going to look at the bread. Um, and our story in, in John 6 starts with a miraculous feeding. I encourage you in, in the communications we send out to actually read all of John 6. Um, you can sit in John 6 for an awful long time. I started looking at it. Actually, this is going to be Brady's sermon, and for logistical reasons, we, we switched. I kind of wish it was his, because it's actually a really hard passage, and it would be a lot more fun watching him figure this out than me having to do it. Um, so it starts with this miraculous feeding. Jesus feeds the 5,000, happens in every one of the Gospels, summarized here. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Other than the as much as they wanted, that sounds a lot like communion, doesn't it? Right? Taking the bread, giving thanks, and distributing it to you who are seated. Um, Jesus does this miracle of feeding, and as you heard as I was reading perhaps, and as you see in this passage, he keeps referring back to the Moses manna deal, right? He's re representing himself as the new Moses, right? And so there's some connection here to manna. God feeds his people in the desert. Moses was the, the prophet who did that. Therefore, Moses has power and authority, right? And when they see Jesus do this, they're making a connection. That's what's taking place there. That's the short of it anyways. And then this supernatural water crossing, 
When they had rowed about three or four miles, the disciples, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. Right? And this has often struck me as a rather um, superfluous, excessive kind of... It's like the turning the water into wine deal that, God, that Jesus did in, in uh, John chapter 4, 2. One of those two. Is that really necessary? Did they really need more wine at that wedding? Right? There were boats. Jesus could have caught up. He could have waited, right? Why, why walk on water? Right? Most of us are, I'm guessing, if we're praying for God to do miraculous and powerful things in our lives or giving us abilities to help others and show things, probably aren't asking to walk on water unless we're in that circumstance where we're going, oh, I got to get over there and I don't have a boat. Right? This seems. Yet, when you put manna in the desert and miraculous of crossing water together, and the references to Moses, you might start thinking back to Exodus where the manna came, and where there was first the crossing of the Red Sea, and then the crossing of the Jordan River, where this miraculous crossing of water led by a man of God, right, in this case, Jesus, is a significant thing. Hold that thought, because in a few slides, I'm going to have a question for you, right, and this will be a hint at where that question should be going, okay? So Jesus is moving deeper here. So when, when I started looking into this passage, someone commented that, you know, when they find Jesus and they ask him a question, he says, yeah, you're just coming to me because I did, not because I did the miracle, but because you had food, because you got bread. And the comment was, well, yeah, that was the point, right? Jesus said, you, these people are hungry, and he told his disciples, give them something to eat. So the fact that they were excited about the fact that they got something to eat, that was exactly the point, right? There's some confusing conversation going on here. But what Jesus wants to do with them is, is take them beyond the bread into its deeper meaning, right? And that really fits for us today because as you participate today in communion, you're going to get a very little piece of bread, right? You are not going to get your fill, and that's intentional because we don't want you to think about, wow, that was the best bread I've ever had, and man, I got a really good deal this time because I got lots of food. We want you to wonder what in the world's going on that we share these tiny little breads. Do you do this anywhere else? Does anyone go to restaurants and pass little pieces of bread around like this, right? This is meant to make us wonder and think and connect to what's going on deeper. Do not work just for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus am the bread. And I know that's bad grammar. It's intentional. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself, but in case they missed that, he says, I am the bread of life. And again, we're back in Exodus, because when Moses says to God, who do I tell the people that you are, that you're sending me? He says, tell them that I am who I am sent you. And if you hear that for the first time, you probably think to yourself, well, that was helpful, right? If you ask me, who are you? And I say, I am who I am, right? Seems a bit snotty, doesn't it? I should say, my name is Eric, at least. God says, I am who I am. And that word is intentionally a mystery, right? We don't even know the tense of it. It could be, um, 
he was who he was, or he will be who he will be, or it could be all those three things at the same time. It's that beautiful thing that when you bump into God and you ask him his name, which, and the name identifies you and it, it labels you and it controls you, God can't give you a name that will satisfy. That's why Jewish people do not say the name of God. They either give his consonants, Y-H, W-H, Yahweh, right? Or they just find another way. The Gospel of Matthew is written to Jewish people, so it talks about not the kingdom of God, because they would have to read that whole gospel saying God every time they talked about the kingdom of God, which is a lot. It talks about the kingdom of heaven, right? Because heaven allows you to not say God when you're referring to God, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And every Jewish person there is going, he said, what? Because he does it seven times in the Gospel of John. He makes a complete new creation out of this thing. He keeps saying, I am this, I am that. And it's these powerful things like, I am actually the manna that comes down from heaven. Right? I'm this bread that you looked for from Moses. It's actually really found in me. Here's the question for you. Where have we heard grumbling before? Talks here that this, the Jews began to grumble about him. Anyone know a famous grumbling passage or grumbling story in the Bible? Exodus. Nice. Can you be a little more specific? Okay. In the desert, when they're getting manna. And why are they grumbling? We're still hungry. It's manna every day. Right? So imagine this, that the only meal you're going to get today is communion bread and just that little piece. And then tomorrow, you get communion bread and just that little piece. And Tuesday, I won't go on, you get the point. Right? So what did they ask for? Back in Egypt, oh, that's a dangerous line, right? You know, God, back when we were slaves, it was really good. Why did you take us out of slavery? Because there, at least we had meat, right? And don't laugh too hard at the Israelites for that one. We do this thing, right? We do this thing where we want to hang on to the life before God has set us free from things because we understood it. It made sense to us. I, I, I knew how to live in my addiction, so why did you pull me out of this? Because now I'm struggling with it. Now I'm dealing with it. My regular complaint right now, by the way, is as I'm learning to pay attention to my emotions is, I think it's really dumb to have to pay, to your emotion, pay attention to your emotions. I'm just going to come right out and say that. Because when I wasn't paying attention to my emotions, if things hurt me, I didn't know because I wasn't paying attention to it, and it was a lot easier. Now, if you say something to me and it hurts me, I actually have to sit in that and wonder about it and deal with it. I think that's crazy. It was way easier before. I want to go back to Egypt, right? Because there I had meat. That's what they're saying. Right? This, the Jews began to grumble, and they happened to grumble right before they got the meat, the quail, right? They said, is this not just Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know this guy. He can't possibly be the bread come down from heaven. So the quail question. Because look what Jesus says. This is right after they started grumbling. He says, I am the living bread, the manna that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
I don't know how much time you spend thinking about that when we have communion. You're going to do this today as we pass the plates. You're going to turn to the next person and say, the body of Christ for you. If you're here for the first time, I, you know, if you've never done communion before and you just walked in here, um, I'd love to hear from you. For the rest of us, if you've done this before, try to imagine what that would be like when somebody turns to you. Good thing it's open. They can see right away it's bread, right? Because you're turning to them and saying, this is somebody's body. Take it and eat it. Right? That's just crazy talk. And if you've done this all your life like I have, you, you, you start to forget this because we're just so used to yes, communion and we say these words. But Jesus is saying to them, never mind you had manna. I'm the bread of life. Don't know what that means exactly. But you're going to take this and it's my flesh you're eating. Right? If somebody offers you their flesh to eat, say no. That's a general good rule. Except in church when we pass the bread. This is the only strange place where we allow somebody's self-sacrifice to be symbolized in this powerful um, and clear of a way. So we see communion clearly here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Right? But this is John 6, and the Passover, the Last Supper, happens in John 18, I think. Not for a long time yet. So again, we're going, oh yeah, we know what that is. It sounds like he's introducing communion. But he hasn't told his disciples anything about communion and about his death, right? He's giving them a strong hint, which we pick up, and we'll see how they respond in just a minute. So the first response I want to show you is what a rabbi would respond. Many different rabbis, of course, have read the New Testament and been asked about, what do you think of this Jesus, and so on. And the one thing they will definitely comment on is when it says, he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, they go, not a chance. If you would stand up, as a teacher or anyone else in a synagogue and say, this is my flesh, eat it, this is my blood, drink it, there would be an uproar. Because Moses said, and the purpose of the synagogue, of course, is to read Moses and study Moses, the Torah. Moses said, do not drink blood. And Jesus says, here's my blood, drink it. Again, I'm just making sure we lean into this is a crazy, shocking reality that Jesus is putting in front of them. He's not just saying, hey, I got this neat little ritual you can do. Try this. Right? He's got crazy shock value. Many people have said this. I'll repeat it. Jesus would be a horrible church planter. Right? He does not soft sell anything. And it seems to me, when I read him, he doesn't explain himself very well either. Right? Kind of keeps me in business. I'm trying to explain what Jesus says. And when I come to passages like John 6, I realize if he didn't try really hard to make sure it was really simple to understand himself, maybe it was meant to be a mystery. Maybe there's meant to be something about this thing we're going to do around communion where we go, yeah, you're right, I actually don't know exactly what's going on here. And I'm wondering if you with me are okay with that. Because we live in a world, most of us grew up in a world where you're taught to explain things, and once you understand them, you sort of feel like you're in control of them, right? If you're taught a trade, if you're an electrician, I do want you to understand electricity so you can control it so that you don't die and I don't die and that things are okay, right? But when it comes to Jesus and communion and the bread of life, 
It's not like science that way. Jesus wants us to be somewhat mystified and yet still keep going and still believing and still hanging on. It struck me as I read this again, he said this while teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. If you read Matthew 4, that's where Jesus reads, teaches in Capernaum, and they want to run him off a cliff and cast stones at him and kill him, and he slips away. Maybe that's why Capernaum's in this one. That would be a very straightforward, understandable response for saying, eat my body and drink my flesh in a Jewish synagogue. And the disciples' response is, yeah, this isn't easy. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus asked them, you do not want to leave too, do you? And then this, Peter answered him. Good old Peter. Peter, the the rock on which the church was built. Peter, the denier of Jesus. Peter, the one who was usually first to speak, sometimes correctly, sometimes not even knowing he was speaking correctly, sometimes completely missing it, right? Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God, right? Notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, Jesus, I get it. I see how this is your body and this is your blood, and I see why we should drink that. No, he says, we just know. We believe that you are who you say you are. We sense God at work in you, even though your words are mysterious, and and this is not easy for us to to follow. But we believe, and we're going to participate, and we're going to carry on. And I think that's so important as we participate in communion, right? There has been bloodshed, ironically, over trying to explain how communion works between Catholics and Protestants and Lutherans and Reformed and so on. We've been very angry and spilled a lot of ink and even some blood over how we understand how this piece of bread that we're going to eat is the body of Christ. And I think the answer is, we don't know, but he said it is, and I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to trust, and I'm going to participate, because what he said was, as I eat that bread, I abide in him, I remain in him, and he in me. This is what bonds me to Jesus Christ. And we actually experience that in in a maybe more understandable, more concrete way. Somehow, most cultures, except for ours apparently, when they want to connect with somebody, they do it over a meal, at a table. They break bread together, and in breaking bread together, they understand and become one with each other in a more real kind of way. And so even if we can't do the logic and the figuring out of how in the world a piece of bread is a body and all those things, fine, good maybe even, but we do understand relationship and love. So I want to suggest to you that this is the mystery of the faith. We're doing Alpha right now, and I love our Alpha people because they come in wondering if they want to be part of this Jesus thing and this Christianity thing, and so they have all the best questions, so keep them coming, folks. And the questions are things like, how exactly does this work, right? And it's really hard. The beauty of doing Alpha, by the way, as, as a pastor is, Alpha's called Ask Any Question, and to the leaders it says, don't answer their questions, which is really good because a lot of times my answer is, yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. Let's sit on that one, right? Because there's some stuff about what we believe, not all of it, there's some stuff about what we believe that you can't just put it together in such a way that you go, oh yeah, now 
I understand. That's why when we participate, we say, take, eat, remember, and believe. It doesn't say remember and understand. It doesn't say understand and therefore believe. It says, bottom line there, faith in search of understanding. That's Anselm, by the way. Not me, Anselm. He said, basically, I believe so that I have a direction for my understanding, right? I believe in Jesus because of my experience with Jesus, and therefore when he says take and eat, I take and eat, and I do try and understand it, I try and explain it, I dig into it as far as I can, but at some points, in some places, I just simply go, yeah, that one's beyond me. That's just part of the mystery, and that's okay, because if you can explain everything about God and this world, you are now God, right? It's inevitable that as you try and lean into God, as you try to have your faith seek further understanding, you're gonna bump into mysteries like the Trinity, where three equals one exactly. And if you can make the Trinity actually make logical sense, you've got it wrong. It's that simple, right? And so we come to this table from this God, who is a mystery, who is beyond us, and we kneel before him, and we bow before him, and we allow him to feed us and relate to us on his terms, because he is God, and he loves us. And that relationship, the middle line there on the screen, is beyond our knowledge. It's not something we control with understanding. It's something we receive as a gift from him. So, take and eat and remember and believe this is the body and the blood of Jesus for you. Today, as we participate in communion, you're going to say words as you pass the trace. I think all you really need to know is starting at this end, passing this way. When you receive the tray, you'll hear the words, the body of Christ for you. You turn to the person beside you and you say, the body of Christ for you. And in that, you're speaking the mystery, right? And then you take a piece and you hang on to it. Please don't participate until we all have been served today, okay? That's the part you need to remember. So. Our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks to his heavenly Father, he broke it and he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ for us. Our participation in who he is and in his death, in his resurrection, and in his reigning. And we do this until he comes again, until the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The prayer of thanksgiving for a communion today was written by our own Liz Meyer. Thank you to all who are participating and helping us develop our communion liturgies. Let us pray. With glad hearts, we praise you, Father God, Creator God. You made this world a fitting home for us, your children. You did not turn away from us, even when we turned from you. For your infinite, for your infinite patience and love, we thank you. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the promised Savior. We praise you for your obedient life on this earth and for going to the cross to carry our punishment. You conquered sin 
and death. We thank you, Lord of life. Holy Spirit, breath of God, we thank you for renewing our hearts and minds and for drawing us back to the loving arms of the Father. Join us in unity, the body of Christ, as we take the bread and drink of communion together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.